0: Hello, I'm Casper Craven, and this is Beyond the Numbers.
1: Chris Thompson here with another episode of Beyond the Numbers. This time, I'm joined by the author, entrepreneur, and adventurer, Casper Craven. Casper's story, I think you'll find, is a remarkable one. He sailed round the world not once, but twice, and the second trip was with his wife and three young children. At that time, he was also still in charge of his business, Trovis, which he ended up selling in the mid-Pacific. He has much valuable insights and experience that he imparts in our chat, and through the work he now does in helping entrepreneurs and individuals to develop businesses and careers that help serve their family goals. Hi Casper, thank you very much for joining me. How are you today? I'm fantastic, the sun is shining and it's a pleasure to be here chatting with you. Thank you, yes it is a beautiful day. Now we first met many years ago when you were heading up your own business called Trovis and you've done a huge amount since 2008 or 9 I think it is. You've sailed around the world twice, obviously, and you also wrote the book, Where the Magic Happens, which I have to say is an absolutely fantastic read. The second time you sailed around the world, you did it with your wife and your three young children. Now, sailing around the world is an immense feat to do it once. (laughs) To do it twice with your family in tow is quite something. You must have... A huge amount of inner resilience. Where where did you develop that? Did it come from the early
0: days of life? By the way, the um, when everyone uh, hears that question or the, the statement that I've said around the world with with three kids under the age of ten, the normal reaction is you must be completely insane. So if you're thinking that right now, then then you're not alone. But the answer to that, and it's kind of the same answer to the resilience question, is an insane amount of preparation. Just you know thinking every single thing through. And, you know, working out what if, what if, challenging all those different things. And I guess, you know, the resilience question, you know, for me, the uh, one of the uh, the sayings that my, my wife has is back in the day, we, we ended up living what she described as one centimeter away from our own faces. But what we did is we created a story of the future that was so more exciting than where we were in that moment. And we all talk about that was the thing that literally pulled us forward into the future. So when I think about resilience, resilience means to me, how do you handle things when they arise, what do you do? If the only frame of reference is the things that are only one centimetres away, then it's quite hard to find the juice, the reasons to really go through that. But if you've got this like glorious technicolour picture that you're going towards, you've got so many reasons to figure your way out through that. And Okay, we had the odd life-threatening situation and you know, figuring that out, that, that, that gives you resilient skills because you're either going to find a way or make a way um, through that. Anyone can have resilience. It's just having enough reasons
1: to get through things and to uh, to keep on going with things. In your case, resilience was a necessity because when you're out at sea and things are going wrong, if you don't act, it's kind of a case of life or death, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: I'm always liking it to yeah, I remember back in the, the business which you talked about Trobus. You know, we would have challenging situations come up, came up, you know, like uh, losing a key employee, having a cash flow crisis, um, you know, losing um, you know a key client, something like that, which all businesses face at some point. We all have issues which come up. I remember in those times in my business, because we had them like everybody else, you can throw your hands in there and say, you know, wouldn't it be easy if we had this, we had this, we had this? but I was liking it on a boat it's just like a business right you've got what you've got so stop worrying about it figure out what you're going to do you get super resourceful and uh, and you find a way through it so boats and businesses
1: right there the parallels there so so take me back to your your childhood days the early days you're from the southwest is that correct correct yes exactly southwest devon
0: and I uh, grew up in this tiny little fishing village on the the south coast in between Dartmouth, Kingsbridge and Solcombe, if anyone knows that area. Yeah, sort of my my parents separated when I was quite young and ended up growing up in this tiny little village, got to know all the local fishermen down there. And the story of this village was that it fell into the sea about just over 100 years ago. So so they had to rebuild the the village sort of half a mile further back. And these fishermen, they were tough, they were resilient. They didn't worry about stuff. It's like, well, let's just get on with this. And I think I always identified with that and so I had my first business when I was um, 14 years old. I found this abandoned um, fishing boat, paired it and then sat down with a fisherman, made some lobster pots and then started um, catching some crabs. And then I figured out, well, why is no one buying these crabs? I had this sign out on this like um, little shed down by the beach and it said crabs for sale and I didn't sell anything. So I thought, well, actually, I've got to do something a bit different. So I got these white T-shirts and this marker pen, and I wrote on there, crabs for sale. And I'd walk around the beach, and then people would uh, see that, and then they'd start laughing when they saw the T-shirts. And the moment that I had people laughing, then they usually managed to get a sale after that. So it kind of took took me to sales and marketing. But I guess by the time I was 17, that business, I was exporting about half a ton of crabs a week to Spain, built up distribution deals, and scaled that business up. So that was kind of where where things started for me in a business sense. Wow. Okay. So that was the early entrepreneur within. Yeah. And... You then stop doing that. I remember my dad always said to me, you know, if you want to go anywhere in life, you've either got to become a lawyer or an accountant. And um, I'm not sure. I'd, I def- definitely don't give that advice to my children now, by the way. <laughs> um, and so uh, I thought, well, okay, I don't really fancy uh, law, Too many words in that. Uh, yeah, cause i actually failed my my English um, exams at school, so I've never very good at writing the irony now of writing a book, right? And so I thought, right, I'm going to become, uh, become an accountant. So went to university, got a degree in economics, trained as a chartered accountant, Baker Tilly, and then ended up having five years at KPMG. I can't believe I lasted so long, but that was early
1: career. So it's, um... Wow, so you did, you did the whole corporate route to start with. So having, having had your own little business, mm-hmm. well, it didn't even sound that little, frankly, and then you went down the corporate route, what was that like for you, having done your own thing? So I look back
0: now and um, I question why I did that for so long. I mean, it felt like the right thing to do at the time. And actually, the the skills that I learned from that... The relationships that I built, actually they were invaluable, although it felt painful at the time because I, I kind of like knew in my heart of hearts I was doing something that wasn't really me, wasn't really authentically me. I learned a huge amount and I guess, you know, that's kind of one of my drives now is helping everyone find their personal purpose, their personal drivers, because I spent so long doing something that wasn't really me and when you find that thing, you just, I always talk about, you know, you set your soul on fire, right? And it's like, you know, this is what you have put on this earth to go and do, so... Wow, that's
1: powerful stuff. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, how many years were you in the corporate world? Ten Eight, uh, um, eight, eight, nine years in eight, the corporate years. world. So. And then, and then you ventured out. What made you suddenly stop in that world, and, and what what did you venture out into? So, I guess the first turning point was when I was at um, I
0: was at KPMG, and I had my first three years there. And I remember at the beginning of 2000 going to the boat show. And I was there with my girlfriend and uh, my dad and my brother and wandering around and they had these big plasma screens uh, with boats crashing through waves. There was a stand there for this uh, yacht race, the BT Global Challenge. And I got chatting to the guys on the stand and they said, do you want to sign up for this race in four years time? And I said, I can't really plan my life four years in advance. The irony now, but again, what I talk about now. Right. So this, And I said, like, yeah, I can't, I can't plan four years away. And they said, well, would you be interested in signing up as a reserve for this race? And so I said, that's interesting. Tell me about that. And they said, well, you pay us 100 quid and you sign up here. And then if, um, if someone drops out, then you might get called forwards." And before I knew what I was doing, my hand was flowing across the piece of paper. My girlfriend comes up to me and says, what are you doing? So I said, I'm signing up to Sail Around the World. But don't worry, it'll probably never happen. A week later, I was on the race. And it just literally came from nowhere. KPMG were great. They actually sponsored me for a year to go and do the yacht race. But I came back from that with peroxide blonde hair. And I did one year. They did. did. Had to do a one-year lock-in with KPMG as a result of going and doing that. But after that, then I kind of knew I was going to do my own thing because it kind of broke my mould of reality, if you
1: like. So, And you'd done quite a lot of sailing, presumably prior to that, in your days in I'd, the I'd, southwest. I'd done some sailing. I had a lot
0: more time just on the water running fishing boats and things like that. Yeah. So I would say I'm far happier on water than I am on land. It's kind of my natural environment.
1: So wow. it, it felt easy. Amphibious almost. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> this this was the end of almost the beginning of the end of your corporate career it was the fact that again this moment of going sailing around the world BT corporate challenge consistent theme i think in your life is that on the two major points have been <laughs> sailing around the world
0: yeah i think so i think there was def- definite change points there i mean the yeah just sort of just seeing a different route to life meeting different people different backgrounds that I just hadn't been exposed to before you know experiencing life and death situations with people putting your hands in somebody else's life and sort of you know challenging situations in hundred foot waves down in the southern ocean and yeah you get a different perspective on life and what's really important came back from that proposed to my um, girlfriend who waited patiently for me and Nicola now my wife Um, (laughs) so same, same lady I think, yeah, after this, I did my one-year lock-in with KPMG, and then after that, started launching my own businesses. And again, I think, you know, you've got to make mistakes, right? You've got to try things. So the first business, I ran that, raised some private equity, ran that, then ran out of money, and that didn't work, and then I had to go and take a couple of finance director jobs uh, before I became entrepreneurial again. So uh, again, just iterating my way
1: forward, so. Okay, brilliant. Now, in your book, I've called this the set narrative of life. I when i read it i found this absolutely enthralling and and eye opening is that you you describe how many of us almost live our lives to what i'd describe as a bit of a set pattern can you can you sort of expand on what that is for our, yeah, totally, our listeners totally
0: so, look, so you know some of those experiences that i've just shared there it kind of made me think in a slightly different way and i guess i remember the um, one of the crunch points was Nicola and I, we had two young kids, and they were four and two, 2009, and we were at my uh, sister's 40th birthday party, and my brother-in-law told us about this family who sailed around the world, and then went on to say how ridiculous that was, and that seed was the one that just sparked our imagination, and let me be really candid with with, with you and your listeners, is that back then, Our life wasn't in a great place. Our business, we were turning over about 400 grand. We were losing money. Uh, I was working 16, 18 hours a day, barely saw the kids. Nithra and I were arguing and fighting and life was not in a great place. And we were asking ourselves the question, is this all there is? What else is there? And we started to question things. It's like, well, why do we do things this way? There is like this set pattern. And it's like, you know, you go traveling when, you're sort of, when you sort of, you know, leave school or university. And then you sort of get a career, you have kids and then you go through. And then maybe when the kids have left home, then um, you go off and do some more traveling again at that point. But it's like, why? Who said, who said it should be that way? Why can't you go traveling in the middle of your career and go and do stuff? Because actually that's the time you want to go and spend time with your kids and go and do cool stuff. I'm not saying our way is the right way. All I'm doing is saying just challenge the status quo, because you know we're all influenced by the things that are around us, the experiences that we have, and you know I love um, the work by uh, Ray Dalio who wrote the book um, Principles, and he always talks about original, independent thinking that each of us have to sit down and have a really hard conversation with ourselves, saying. What's my purpose? Why am I here? What am I doing? What's my direction? What are my values? All these big questions. And you've got to come to your own conclusion. And I realised up until that point in our sort of mid to late thirties, we had just been following the pattern laid down by everyone else without really questioning it. And we hit that pain point where you know it almost all fell apart for us. And the thing that changed us was creating a different narrative of the future. And I use that word very deliberately in the narrative or the story of just sort of saying, you know, let's create a more exciting story for our lives that we deliberately, specifically have consciously created rather than just following the same pattern. So that's kind of what the, the whole narrative of life is about.
1: So a lot of people potentially are just subconsciously going through the motions of a life Almost set out in front of them without realizing it. Exactly, exactly. You cannot help be, be
0: influenced by the things that are around you, the expectations of your peer group, of your family, of everyone else who's doing the same thing. And this is what you mentioned with your dad earlier. Absolutely. You said your dad said, my, my you I'm a lawyer this, or an accountant? This, this is, Exactly, it is, it's exactly this pattern. There's a guy that I've been listening to recently, a guy called um, David um, Goggins, who um, he's sort of affectionately called the, the sort of the hardest man in the world. He's like done all the Navy SEAL training and all this sort of stuff, and he says, "You yeah, look, if you have um, you, you have your life," and he said, the, the, you, "Let's say you spend time with six people who, you know, slightly harshly calls, you know a mediocre. If you're slightly better than them, then you know you feel good because you're better than mediocre." But it's like, well, hang on a second, is that the right yardstick to use? The only important yardstick is you and what's important to you and just taking the time to create your own
1: narrative so that's really interesting i think what you're sort of referring to is that we are hugely influenced by our environment totally totally yeah. we'll come to okay. a bit more in environment yeah. shortly so what you've described as trovis i think it was trovis your business Tro- exactly so you would started out and that was incredibly tough it was consuming all your time yep and placing pressure on family life and with your wife, yes, absolutely. I've sort of heard somewhere that you saw sailing around the world as as the means to save your family and your marriage. <laughs> Is that something you're okay to talk uh, about? Yeah, to- totally. I mean, it's like there, there was that.
0: I think that was the, the New York um, Times or New York Post headline, yeah. which was slightly dramatic, and they they kind of like exploded a little bit. But I mean, the the bottom line was that you know our relationship was not in a healthy place and arguing and fighting about money, and all that sort of stuff. And that was when we created, yeah, so let's deliberately, specifically, consciously create the narrative of where we want to go. And what was fascinating is that by creating that shared narrative together, that gave me so much more energy, so much more purpose in life. Because you know, if you want to be successful in any area, you've got to make mistakes, you've got to fail, because that will be the learning route. And if you've got that strong enough reason why to go through that, that will make you learn at a far faster rate. We put a deadline in the diary, 1st of August 2014, when we were going to set sail and go around the world. Sorry, and what year was this when you did So this? 2009. 2009. 2009 when, when I first met you. Exactly, exactly <laughs> when we first met. Because up until that point, up until that point in 2009, I always said, in five years' time, I'm going to sell a business. And then I will get some money. And then I will go and do things with family. But I was living life on the deferred life principle. It was this and then that. And it was completely the wrong way around. So we decided to put family first. Let's create our family-first goals. That's what we're going to go and do. We told every single person, most importantly, we told our kids, 1st of August 2014, we're going to get on a boat and sail around the world. And we got our kids to imagine what that looked like. How did so- they feel about that? <laughs> so, so, look, so they were four and two when we first introduced the idea to them. But we... Got them to draw pictures. We got them to engage with the future because we couldn't just suddenly on the thirty first of July two thousand and fourteen say, right, kids, we're off on the boat tomorrow. We're going to go and go because they would have, they would have like their arms up and like you know turn into terrorists. So we had to involve them and engage them. Same process, by the way, for building a team. Right, you've got to get engaged hearts and minds. So um, talking about that right from the get go. So yes yeah, so their pictures and just getting them thinking about that. But that was the most powerful thing of telling everybody including our kids that we're going to go and do this that gave me more reasons to learn at a faster rate to move more out of my comfort zone
1: to go and do what I needed to do to make create the money to make it happen moving out of the comfort zone is a really interesting one because we were talking about resilience earlier was moving out of the comfort zone all the challenges that you faced from those nearest and dearest to you sometimes the biggest doubters in one's life can be those that are actually closest to you how did you deal with all that okay so the moment we told everybody we're going to go and do this
0: everybody gave us a very long list of reasons why we shouldn't go and do it and there were lots of obvious reasons right i'm not going to argue with them and we didn't have the money nicola been on the boat twice she'd been seasick both times (laughs) um we didn't have a boat i mean all sorts of good reasons why so your wife suffers with seasickness. Still, still, still suffers <laughs> from seasickness. That's how powerful the reason why is, by the way. You know, what's that saying? I think it was Nietzsche who said, if you have a strong enough why, you can overcome any how. I love that quote. Brilliant um, quote. So that, I mean, that, you know, talking about resilience, that <laughs> goes right to the heart of it, right? It's having that strong enough uh, why to, to go and do it. All those different reasons why not, If we had tried to answer every single one of those immediately, we would have been overwhelmed and it would have killed everything. And equally, it would have been irresponsible to ignore all of those things because there were some really valid things in there to think about. But I was liking it to this, you know, someone gives you an objection or a reason you can't do something. And it's like someone's coming towards you and I can, I'm, I'm, I'm moving my hands around. You can't see that on the audio. But like it's literally you start resisting and it's like you start clashing heads. Banging heads. Banging yeah. heads. Thank, thank you. The, um, and that just creates energy which goes nowhere. So when we had all those things, write them all down. And then in our own time, we would look at each of those and take them one by one and say, OK. There's a valid thing here. Let's think about that, how we're going to deal with that. So, for example, medical. We would have been completely irresponsible if we hadn't thought about medical, how we're going to deal with things. So we both took the decision to train to become ship's doctors. The most advanced medical training you can take out of side becoming a doctor or a nurse. We had, like, you know, five grand's worth of medical equipment on board. We always knew where there was a doctor on another boat not a million miles away. We had, like, a permanently open satellite phone line that we could call um, a hospital in the UK and get advice so each individual area thinking how do we deal with this the criticism was actually supremely helpful it just had to be taken in the right way and thought of actually you know that there's something valid here let's do the research
1: and we'll come to our own conclusion on it okay so you had a vision Mm -hmm. you had your reasons why you were heading or looking ahead to that place Mm -hmm. but of course you were struggling at the time with the business yes so you kind of got the family on board yep and you were all working towards that goal mm-hmm. but how do you get your business to work for you okay so or work for you and your family to okay. get to your goal okay so basically so I made
0: lots of screw-ups by the way so let's just talk about a few of those <laughs> so it's it's always <laughs> good best way to learn right it really is so look when we came up with the idea 2009 for the next two years I started changing things in the business or I thought I was changing things and honestly I was in denial. I was tinkering around the edges. I wasn't really getting to the heart of what I was doing and what forced the issue was having that deadline. So it got to the end of 2011. Now rather than being five years away, it was now three years away. I realised there were huge gaps in our skill sets and our learning predominantly around sales and marketing and we had developed some interesting propositions and some interesting products but we were not selling them in enough volume into the right markets in the right way so I started immersing myself in learning and literally seeking out the very smartest people that I could find in the world. And I would start going to these conferences. So we were B2B sector in the UK. So I would go to B2C conferences in the US. Because if you stay in your own sector, you'll just do the same as everybody else, right? And. This, for me, independent, original thinking, right? We talked about that. It's how do you go and find stuff that really stands out? There's a brilliant book, by the way, uh, The Star Principle by Richard Koch. And he talks about, you know, if you want to have a supremely successful business, you need to have two things. One, you've got to be the number one in your category. And two, your category has got to be growing compound 10% a year into the foreseeable future. But what you can do is create a niche spur category off a main category. So it's doing something that is different differentiated uh, but you've got to be number one in the marketplace so we had to go and find different ideas different approaches so I went and loaded myself up with all these different ideas which are all the right ideas and so that was the first thing I did well, but then I started trying to drive it all through, and it was what I would call an ego-driven business with me telling everybody, this is what we should do, this is how we should do things. And then I got to a crunch point where everybody threatened to leave, and then I realized that I had to really engage the team, and that was the second piece. So one piece was the structural thing, how do you grow a business, create a rapidly growing business. The second piece was how do you create a team to go and do all those different things. It's all very well, you having the ideas, but if it's you're the only one implementing them, it's
1: not. Going to go very far. So you you try to lead it from the front and then realize that actually that wasn't quite working, right? Correct. Was was that one of the issues that you were talking about just a few minutes ago? That was the second issue. Thinking that you've got all the answers.
0: Ray Dalio I've already mentioned the um yeah, he one of the, one of the phrases that I picked up from him recently is replacing the joy of being right with the joy of finding the truth. And so many of us are wedded to the joy of being right. Why? Because we've been educated, trained that way through the exam system, it's all about being right, right? And so our ego is tied up in that, our identity all that sort of stuff. But when you get to a point where you've got a bigger goal, a bigger purpose, it doesn't really matter who is right, it only matters what is right. So that was a shift that we had to make in the business. The so Ray Dalio described it as an idea as meritocracy rather than democracy or an autocracy
1: which is what I had before. That is absolutely fascinating because, and I think we'll cover it maybe a bit later when we talk about kids and education, mm-hmm. because obviously you had to tackle that on the boat. But um, one thing I sort of observe in the world today is everything's so very knowledge-based. That's all well and good. But of course, business is about people and dealing with people, which I think is exactly what you've just described in terms of dealing with your team to get things going the way you wanted to. Exactly.
0: Look, so look, I mean, I trained as an accountant, right? So my primer face, you think, managing a business was running by the numbers, but the numbers are trailing indicator. The people are the leading indicator, right? It's always all about the people and the numbers are telling you whether you've got it right, but trying to drive a business just based on numbers and overruling people and crunching people, it, 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 for me, it's a losing strategy. So people first. I love that.
1: And that's why we call this podcast Beyond the Numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Almost so, as though we scripted that together, right? So, right. No, <laughs> it, it, was, it was unscripted. I promise you. <laughs> So okay, so you started to hand more tasks and what more ideas to your staff. How how did that all work? What what was the sea change
0: there? One piece was co-creating the story, the narrative of the future. You know, I remember back in uh, my days um, in Baker Tilly and KPMG and a little bit of corporate other corporate stuff as well. Um, you know, the whole thing with vision, mission, values, and it was all just corporate gobbledygook to me. I never understood it. You know, I remember having this sort of ten sort of line sort of uh, value statement, and it was this language that I couldn't access and what I mean by that I get to the end of reading the second bullet point and I couldn't even remember what the first one was it doesn't matter what's on the piece of paper it only matters what you can carry inside your head so what we had to do as a business was create a shared narrative where everyone felt engaged bought internet involved and that's where we're going towards what's that famous story with the guy who's sort of sweeping the floors I'm in a factory oh NASA the NASA, the NASA story. and someone says to him it's like what are you doing they said well I'm building a rocket ship yeah. and uh, because they I identified with the mission and the story. So we had to make that shift of creating the shared story and then a lot of work on our values, how do we work together, and a lot of work building on each individual person's strengths Asking each person, why are you in the room? Why do you care? Why does this matter to you? Because people do things for their reasons, not for your reasons. So tapping into that sense for each person.
1: It's always a great question, why do you get out of bed in the morning? I think totally. the, the NASA quote was something along the lines of, I help get people to the moon. And the yeah, guy was maybe. like cleaning the factory or something. The factory, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> I didn't write it at NASA, but yeah, there's a yeah. actually paraphrase the stolen story for someone, but that's the one. So, so, yeah. so you introduced yeah. vision, purpose, and values into the business. Yes. Yeah. There seems to be a bit of a correlation between this and your family experience totally. or journey. Yeah. So, look, so one of, the, one of the things we have is thrive at home, thrive at work. And
0: the same things that make you thrive at home are exactly the same things that make you thrive at work and vice versa. So we took all these concepts from work of story, aka vision mission, and applied that at home, also took values at home. And the whole thing, which people naturally do in a family, I think, is to care about each other, to look after people, to take that idea to work. You know, this, there's been more research and surveys than I care to remember, which I said the number one uh, motivating fact of anyone in any organisation is they feel cared about. People naturally do that, or most places do that in a family, right? So that concept is not difficult. But people always think, here's my work life, here's my personal life. And I dispute that. You've got one life, right? How you do anything is how you do everything. And, you know, how you show up in one place. So it's just being consistent with that, which comes back to the authenticity piece, right? And being really clear on your own personal compass, your own personal story, what are you doing and why.
1: And that makes it easier to apply things in both places. Uh, That's interesting because... I always remember sort of one or two people in the past coming into work and saying, well, I'm not here to make friends. But but to me, that seemed... Uh, the question I was... I couldn't say it at the time that was in my brain, though, was, well, why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's, but it's funny, isn't it? The stories
0: and the influences that we have, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like... In, yeah, nothing springs to mind immediately, but they you know, past stories of, you know, well, actually, so something like Dragon's Den, right? And it's like you have this style, you've got to be adversarial and you've got to do all this sort of stuff. And it's like, I don't buy that, right? Um,
1: just be a nice person, right? I mean, it's... Well, you sort of think of The Apprentice as well, where it becomes yeah. so, it's so <laughs> yeah. dog-eat-dog kind of scenario, which to my mind isn't isn't representative of and it's not, it's the not business so, world. It's not the business that I want to be involved in. And, uh, right. you know,
0: clearly there are businesses out there like that. But it's funny, so I spent a lot of time with uh, with Chris Moss, who was the CMO at Virgin Atlantic. We spoke at our conference earlier this week about his experiences creating the orange brand and so on. And we have very similar philosophies about the whole sort of, you know, family
1: and business, thrive at home, thrive at work. It's, you know, clearly something that Virgin done incredibly well. One thing I've sort of noticed is that it's very much about people and putting people first. It's in every scenario that you describe, be it your family or your business. And I think there's a phrase that you use in the book of we over me. Can we, you expand yeah, over that? Totally, expand on that? Totally, yeah, I mean, look, this
0: was directly towards me, right? When I was um, doing my uh, autocracy bit in the business. Yeah, so we adopted this phrase. It's we, not me. You know, moving from that ego driven business where I thought I had all the answers. Yeah, it's just a short phrase that we we developed. since the team together.
1: Do you have sort of examples of where where you experienced success through this use of values, this value driven approach? I mean look the once we started to implement this
0: in our business with the really clear story, the whole values thing, building on everybody's experiences, creating the shared story together, then that was one of the key things that just led to the transformation of the business. And within 12 months of starting to implement these approaches, that was what set us off on a ridiculous growth path where we were growing faster than we were ever grown before, making more profit than we made like ever in all the years combined just by doing these things. And it's funny because when we started implementing values, I went home and I thought, right, what are our values? And I came up with a list of six values and I made like a smart word out of it. And I went back to the business and I said, here's our values. And they just looked at me and shook their head and said, it's like, no, they're not. And it's like, it's like, oh, man, I can not learn the lesson yet. So, uh, so all I'm showing basically is all my mistakes of how not to do
1: it. And it all comes back to that we, not me thing. So. Yeah. And what about on the boat? Can you provide an example of values in action on the boat? Yeah, plenty. I mean, so values was, we did, so we did values
0: at home because we knew that we had to be able to get the kids engaged because if we didn't, then the potential for them to turn into terrorists at sea was quite hard, uh, sorry, quite high. So we created this values framework. We agreed what our values were. We talked about what we did when we lived the values at their very best. And we had these little rituals and these award ceremonies for developing these things. And... What that did, it changed the conversation from being all about this is the problem, whose fault is this, to who is doing things particularly well, what are the things we want to see more of. So we had you know, a challenging situation in the middle of the Pacific when we had power failure and uh, you know, we had to figure out what to do. I'm pretty certain if I'd been back in my corporate days, I would have said, well, it's your fault, start blaming somebody. The problem is, all that sort of language. But because we'd focused on our values, we'd, if you like, built muscle around what was right rather than what was wrong. That became the instinctive reaction. These things aren't just soft and fluffy. These are words, language patterns, behaviours, which you are embedding into your neural pathways, how you do things, so that that becomes the most common reaction
1: when things don't get in the right way. So was this of real help because without giving all your book away, you start off with the fact that the generator goes down <laughs> your mid-Pacific Ocean, I think it is. Yep. The the engine is stalling or stalls. You're out of power. You have no communication with the outside world or very limited and Guess what? There's a storm coming or you're in the middle of a yeah, storm. in the middle of a storm, right? Because when everything goes wrong, it always goes wrong together,
0: <laughs> doesn't it? Just like, just like in business, right? Right. And you have that, uh, that perfect storm. How do you cope? Well, the way not to do things is to blame everybody, get cross, get angry. The way to do things is, you know, th- this is the way that we've um, developed our pattern of working together, our values-based thing. So it has to be done well in advance. That gives you the blueprint of how you do stuff. And yeah, you know, the formula which um, you know I've always taught my kids is this formula: E plus R equals O, where E is the event, something happens to you, whether you have a cash flow crisis, whether you lose a key employee, whether you have a power failure in the middle of the ocean. R is your reaction, what do you do as a result of that? And O is the outcome. It doesn't say the event equals the outcome, it's the event plus your reaction, which is always 100% under your control. And it's funny, we were talking before about Viktor Frankl, right? And man's search for meaning. I mean, so he was in the concentration camp and he said, you know, they can take everything away, but I've still got control over my mind. You know, that's the whole essence of that R piece, that reaction piece, that um, there's always something you can do. And sometimes you just need to get super resourceful And, you know, the people who are going to help you out of this are the people around you. So don't disengage them, work with them and and figure out how you're going to do stuff.
1: That's fascinating insight because one of the observations in Frankel's book, Man's Search for Meaning, is, and he observes that those who tended not to make it uh, out of the concentration camps were those who lost hope, but those who did make it, Maintained some form of mental mm. hope and vision. yes yeah, the story, right? That, that mm-hmm. the world would improve and become a better place, and that there was something worth living for. Now, where did you first come across E plus R equals O? So
0: look, yes. I can't I can't take ownership of this. This is uh, I I it was I, th- I think it was an American speaker, and I heard it at a conference many years ago. Uh, it might be Jack Canfield. I'm not sure, but I've heard it somewhere, somewhere before. So it's um, was this as you were trying to transform Trovus? This, it was around that time, actually. Right. So uh, it was actually a conference by LexisNexis, the, uh, the, oh, le- yes. the legal supplier. Yes. So, um, Still in existence. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so someone shared it there. So And that really just lodged in my mind. I thought, you know, that is such a simple thing. And it's what, what I teach my kids, right? How do you deal with stuff? So,
1: so to go through that formula again, so E, e whatever, e whatever you're doing in life,
0: E, stuff will happen. Whatever, Events. What the event? Something will come up which you have no control
1: over. Just completely out of the blue. Good or bad. Good or bad. Whatever e, it is. E is going to happen. Yep. R is your response. Your reaction. What do you do? How you deal with it. Correct. Right. Do you blame
0: people? Do you like work with people? Do you get resourceful? How do you think about things? So this formula, and it's a great formula, is the route to beat blame culture. Well, the prerequisite is doing, for me, is doing the values piece because you build that muscle, you train yourself, you develop that fitness for how do you work together as a team. And, you know... It's counterintuitive because our brains are, you know, billion-year-old brain is hardwired to look for problems, to look for fault, for look what, for what's wrong. So if you want to go against your ingrained culture, you have to do something deliberately, specifically, consciously. And you know, there, there, there will be other ways to do this, but the one that I favour is clearly the values framework for
1: doing that so. The outcome is really all about R, correct because E will happen, good or bad, regardless. Life is like that. Stuff happens. Absolutely, and it goes back to the stuff and you know, everyone's saying, well, you, know, you you can't go
0: and take your kids around the world. It's like, well, you know what? I'm gonna teach them resilience. And, you know, how do you deal with stuff? You know, they're gonna to have to deal with things in their life, whether they fail an exam. And what's interesting, you know, we came back and the kids went back into school. They went back into the year that they would have been as if we hadn't been away, and just stepped straight back into that. Some subjects, they were light years ahead. Some subjects, they were behind because they'd missed out on stuff. But the fascinating thing, my oldest daughter, Bluebell, um, she went and did an exam. She came back one day and she said, I'm worried you're going to be cross with me. So I said, why would I be cross? And she said, I only got 23% in this exam, the event. So I said, well, what did you do? The reaction, right? And she said, well, I stayed late after school. went to find a teacher, figured out where I'd gone wrong. And so I learned from it. It's like, my work here is done, right? I mean, that's that's the point, isn't it? So how do you deal with stuff?
1: Uh, That's very interesting. So she didn't mope about feeling sorry for herself the first thing that she did was to figure out where she'd gone wrong and what she could do to address it correct yeah Yeah. i I wish i'd thought like that as a kid i'd have improved my grades considerably (laughs) (laughs) by the the way i'm not i'm not
0: saying my kids are perfect by the way and we still have all the normal stuff that every other parent will have with with kids you know i always think with with parenting like leadership that I, i always think that i'm a farmer and what do I mean by that? I'm planting seeds continuously and I'm putting sunshine and water on that. And at some point, green shoots uh, will appear. If I plant a seed today and expect an oak tree tomorrow, there's only one person that's being deluded, and that's me. So it takes time for this stuff to develop and it's the consistency of doing that over time.
1: So the, the R in that is long-term, long-term response. T- totally, totally. And you so. get the outcome. In your lead-up, to sailing around the world the second time. Mm-hmm. This is. Yep. Presumably, and I, I know this actually, you do a lot of visualization. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that and where, where that
0: comes from? Of course, of course. So, um, a seminal book in my, in my world um, Psycho Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. If you haven't read it, go and find it it's brilliant he was kind of like the the forefather of modern psychology and came up with the whole story of self-identity and so on it's interesting he used to be a plastic surgeon and the backstory to it is that he would operate on people do plastic surgery half the people who have dramatic personality shifts half the people wouldn't he came to realize it was not the knife that was doing it it was the internal thought process how do you do things and he has an amazing um, section in that book called The Theatre of Your Mind. And he talks about creating this movie where you imagine the future and it all plays out inside your mind because your mind can't tell the difference between real and imagined. And so you create that story in your mind in advance. That's what you are naturally therefore drawn to and create. So for five years before he went away I would go downstairs at 5.30 in the morning and I would do five to ten minutes in the theatre of my mind imagining all these rich vivid details of all. The different things we were going to go and do the same process that Walt Disney used when he was creating Disney he sketched it all out in his mind someone asked his brother um after Walter died and when they were opening Disneyland it opened before he was when it, when it was not alive and someone said to the, the journalist said to his brother isn't it sad that Walt never got to see this and it's like what do you mean he saw this every day of his life in his
1: mind you know it's that's very powerful that's, that's where everything is created first very powerful okay so Trovis was taking off mm-hmm doing well and you're approaching 2014 Mm -hmm. you haven't even got a boat yet right (laughs) (laughs) yeah that obvious thing (laughs) yes so uh, when did you get the boat so we got the
0: boat in um, uh, what was it? Beginning of May 2014. So with about two and a half months to go before we uh, we finally left. Wow. So uh, those of you with your insane are in, you're, you're, in you're probably going off the chart again right now. <laughs> um, but we had been looking at boats for uh, a couple of years, so we knew exactly what we wanted, and we went and bought uh, basically the best boat on the market um, for what we were going to go and do. And we just had a short space of time to put um, a huge amount of um, refit work in. Out to get her ready,
1: and to go through um, testing her and uh, sea trials and things like that. So, and it's in your book. there's a huge amount of preparation that you do, and yeah. and actually addressing the issues that people bring up appears to be part of the preparation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's
0: yeah. I mean, so look. My, so I'm an accountant by background, right? My wife Nicola, she was a barrister by background, and neither of us were in the habit of being cavalier with risk. So all those different objections. Those are the things that we went through in great amounts of detail. And again, it's another team thing here, right? So we had this standing joke in our world that if it was down to Nicola, nothing would ever get started. If it was down to me, nothing would ever get finished. And so she's the one for the last two years Whenever you saw her, she had this big file with all these different spreadsheets and literally going through every single area because you need someone like that on your team. And if you know it's not you, i.e. I, I, me, um, then you need to have someone who can make sure that, that all that happens. Yeah, so she made sure you know we did all the right training courses, we had all the right sea survival equipment, the schooling stuff, the
1: medical equipment, You know, endless lists of different things to, to make sure we had covered. Obviously, the, the medical side of things... Obviously you had to do a huge amount for. What about your children and their education in that time frame? Because I think you were sailing for how long, two years? Two years, just, just shade under two years. So. so how did you prepare for that? So we went
0: and um, spoke to all the kid teachers beforehand and we took lots of advice from them. We did lots of research on homeschooling courses. Or when I say we, I mean Nithra, of course. <laughs> um, so we had all this um, stuff and we had loads and loads of books for key stage two keys I don't know what they were now and uh, all that was on the boat the interesting thing was once we got on the boat we found it was impossible to try and follow any of that stuff so we actually put the books to one side and said okay we had to follow what the kids were interested in we had to follow their curiosity follow their passions which actually led us to finding just all sorts of different you know ways that they would learn and what's interesting so for example uh, my son um, Columbus whose name I realized by by the way, was typecast right right from the get-go for this. He developed such an insane love of the natural world, and he created his story and identity around that. We listened to Desert Island Discs by Sir David Attenborough, and he was talking about him setting up this museum when he was eight. So Columbus set up the Columbus Museum, Literally just last night, Columbus brought a piece of homework down for me. He's he's 12 now. And he was asked to do um, this categorization of all the different species of vertebrates and so on. And the teacher had asked him to do so much on it. But he had gone so far above and beyond what they had asked him to do, because his narrative, his story, is I'm someone who loves the natural world and you know it was just incredible seeing what he'd done He colored it all in beautiful detail all this extra stuff he wasn't asked to do because he we developed that natural curiosity which I think you know we have to do for the people in our teams what we have to do for our children is to develop their natural curiosity and if people have that then they don't need to be told to do anything they just naturally go towards that and so I'm not worried about a kid's education because they're just like charging off
1: they're creating their own paths. To do that did is it a case of finding what your kids engage with, love doing? Exactly that. Yeah, we
0: ask them, "What, what do you love doing?" And uh, on the boat, we, on the boat. And we just followed those paths. Same thing I did in the business with each and every employee. What are the things you love doing? What do you hate doing? Okay, tell well, if you hate doing this stuff, I'm not gonna make you do it. I'm gonna find somebody else to do those things because somebody else will love doing those things because we're all different, right? And you know, well, that was one it's of my the spice of life. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, exactly. But it's um but you have to find those things where you flourish and
1: you really, you know, get a buzz out of it. So So again, we've got another example, scenario there of what worked on the boat and with the family, worked in the business. Thrive at home, thrive at work, thrive at work, thrive at home, right? Same things, right? little people. How big was the boat?
0: 16 meters. So the, the room that we're, we're sitting in here, it's about the same spi- same size space as we had uh, for living area. Nobody can visualise that, obviously, but it was a small space. So it's, you're, it's smaller than your average
1: kitchen. So. so this is the ultimate test of teamwork because you're all almost on top of each other. You'll have great days, wonderful sailing days, and you're going to have things go wrong and are going to really test you, and you're almost on top of each other. I mean, look, you know, just so you're not sort of sitting there thinking, you know, this
0: is the ideal paradise thing. And we're sitting there with stripy blue and white tops, sipping gin and tonics. It was not like that. Um, I was joke, the best thing about what I did was spending 24 seven with Nicola and the kids. The hardest thing about what I did was spending 24 seven with Nicola and the kids. And I remember we got to the Canary Islands about three months in. Uh, my dad's uh, wife, uh, Sharon, took the, boat, the, t- the kids off the boat for 24 hours and she brought them back after 24 hours. And I just looked at them and said, can you take them away again, please? I'm not ready to See them again, Keep them, please, because <laughs> it was like it was having gone from like working long hours in the business to now being with them all the time. But after that, we got used to it, and that, well, that was the magic of why we did it. Um, but it takes some adjusting to do that. So, you know, of course, we had our challenging times, and you know, we had arguments and lots sort of stuff because we're normal people. But they never lasted very long, and you find the way through because you've developed the mechanisms and the culture of
1: how you deal with that. So, looking at E plus R equals O, is this the ultimate team? environment, sailing in a yacht, around the world, limited space, because there's so much E that's gonna happen. <laughs> and the R is down to you as a team. It really is. Your outcome is totally reliant on your R working together as a unit. Thank you. Go. Exactly that's exactly that's biggest challenge? Um, oh, I think what I just
0: mentioned now 24 7 with, with Michelle yeah. Kids. But the best thing at the same time as well. Singular event, I mean. Oh, the biggest, the tough, tough singular event? I think there were two. So there's one potential one, which was everybody always described this as the adventure of a lifetime and it never was the adventure of a lifetime because whatever you do there's always got to be another mountain to climb afterwards you cannot sit at the top of a mountain because um, we're designed I believe to grow to learn to struggle to fail and then to move forwards again I learned this first time around the world I came back from that and I remember finding myself sitting at the bottom of my dad's garden at three o'clock in the morning with a bottle of whiskey because you have an amazing high where do you go after that you hit a low and so this time around we always knew there was going to be something afterwards we just didn't know what it was so there was always that next mountain that we had to go towards so that was part of the planning um, in advance to avoid falling into that so that was um one one um, challenge which i guess we had to navigate around i think probably you know the most dramatic ones yeah was the power failure because they're in the middle of the ocean 500 miles
1: from anywhere and it's like okay what are we going to do now <laughs> so. wasn't another one every parent's nightmare that your youngest was it daughter? I think she fell off a bunk and cracked her head open. Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was testing as well. So yeah, we had a little medical emergency
0: where we had to um stitch her head back together um using strands of her own hair. Yeah, no, that that, that that tested us as well. But it's interesting yeah, because when that happened, the kids already had a frame of reference for what do you do when things don't go wrong? And I remember Bluebell saying, oh, it's kind of like when we had the power failure before. OK, well, we know what to do. So we'll go and do this and we'll go and do this. So they were already developing resilience by then. But yeah, no, of course, when, you're, you're, when your little one sort of has, has an injury as, as anywhere, then you know, your, your heart beats a bit faster. So. And
1: what about when you did have power failure? Because, well, isn't one of your family values humour? <laughs> can, can you tell us about that particular that story?
0: So, yes, yeah, so these values our values were stood they were summarized by the word laugh," which stands for love, action, understanding, go prepared, and happy," where well, the whole word laugh is like find the humor in whatever you do, and so when we had the power of failure, the first thing we did was find the humor in it. And told the kids we didn't have working toilets, and gave them a bucket to poo in and uh, ch- chuck it over the side, which they thought was the funniest thing they'd ever done. So it's so again, it's it's not like, yeah, you know, it's not taking life too seriously, right? It's finding the humour and everything, because at some point you'll say, well, yeah, in, in, in five years' time, we'll laugh about this." Well, if you could laugh
1: about it in five years' time, well, why don't we find something to laugh about it with now? So, how much did you? How much have you developed as a family off the trip? Oh, look it brought us closer together
0: i mean it's like you know my wife and i were on the point of you know not being together beforehand and this one choice to do this changed us in every way imaginable we have a tight close bond together as a family we're about to go off to san francisco for a week um, on the boat um, tomorrow the kids you know, the boat is part of their story, part of same their boat. makeup. Same, same boat, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Willow, our, um, she's now six. Yeah, when we told her about three weeks ago we were going, she packed her bag that evening. So she had her bag packed for three weeks now to go and get back on board the boat. But it's just a lovely dynamic. You know, we, we keep doing adventures. So last summer we sailed to Mexico and back the summer before from to San Francisco to Canada and back and what's lovely is you get back on the boat and this amazing family dynamic just comes back together again, and we just bond and connect in different way. We switch off digital devices and just suddenly it's like we're talking more, we're playing more games and i'm I'm always fascinated by learning at the extremes and you know, By doing something as extreme as this, we can see the difference in our family between being digitally connected um, and normal life at home and being on the boat. And it's just so
1: much more of an enjoyable thing where there's just that togetherness and that connection back at sea. I'll explore some of that, a little bit more of that with you in a minute. But another interesting point I noted from the book was the business was running without you. Mm-hmm. So you left and the business... You were still part of the business, but it was running without you. And then you sold it, I think again, like mid-Pacific or something. How did that work? (laughs) Okay, there's a lot of stories in that one. Before we left, we tried to sell
0: the business while we are in the UK. And um, it wasn't at the right time to sell that. So we we put in place an incredible management team following all the techniques, the story, the values, building on people's strengths, getting people in the right roles. And uh, we brought in an experienced chairman and uh, transitioned the roles around. I stepped out of the business. I would dial in for board meetings once a month. Basically under the team, you know, my ego took a bit of a dent that it started thriving even better without me, which I came to realize was actually a fantastic thing that it does better when you're not there. As we sailed across the Atlantic, those buyer conversations came back on the table we had two offers to buy us as we we're going across the Atlantic we selected a preferred bidder um, in the Caribbean and then uh, we were negotiating sale and purchase going across the Pacific so probably the most expensive phone calls in my life two sets of lawyers <laughs> two sets of accountants, satellite phone bills and everything else I don't know it's like I, I, I shudder to think how much they cost but anyway we ended up um, sending this for seven figures from mid Pacific so. so that was via satellite
1: communication
0: psychology. correct yeah wow <laughs> so our lawyers would call up and they say right can you describe where you are today and it's like well you know there's some big waves out there and there's, there's an albatross here and it's like that's you know, that's what we can see out there so maybe in a will first i don't know selling it selling it selling a business from, from a boat in the middle of the ocean so uh, i don't know of any other stories of that
1: but uh, <laughs> i gladly welcome them <laughs> some very interesting points there what was your favorite part of the whole trip our
0: reason why for doing it was to create magical life-changing experiences for us and the kids so it was the magic of spending time together as a family going to these far-flung places getting the kids into local schools wherever we went around the world um, lying on deck at the night looking up at the stars having conversations with the kids about parallel universes meeting amazing people And, you know, we met this, uh, actually some some friends of ours were seeing um, next week in San Francisco, uh, this lady Sarah, when she was 16, she was European Scientist of the Year. Brilliantly smart lady. And I remember her teaching uh, Bluebell, um, who was nine at the time, over the long-range radio. They were about 600 miles away. And teaching Bluebell how to create prime number tables up to hundreds, figuring out what prime numbers are, and just seeing the magic of the different interactions and
1: exposing different ideas and different people, so things like that. So. Very much the kids' side of things was part of that. How much of your kids benefited from this experience, do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, they have um, a natural
1: underlying
0: confidence, natural underlying resilience. I think probably the biggest thing is just firing their curiosity with the world and getting them to think differently about things, encouraging them to do the independent, original thinking, uh, what's really important to them. Um, rather than saying this is the set route for doing things. So.
1: Do their teachers see a difference in, say, personality and personality traits compared to others in the class? Is that something you've seen in feedback? They've not articulated that um, to us. And you know, each of the
0: children are very, very different. So they have three very distinct personalities with them all. But you can see they're just, you know, thriving in their own way, and they're finding their own paths and, and doing their own things. So, but I mean it's funny it's a lovely story and we got, when we when we Navigator, we got back to St Lucia or where we crossed our outbound track and there was a Swedish skipper walking down the dock and four year old Willow calls out to him and says like, hey Stefan do you want to come on board for a drink and he's like yeah sure so she come, he comes and sits down on deck and she goes and gets him a beer gets herself a lemonade and they just just stop and sit there and chat for half an hour just like you do just like a normal <laughs> conversation because I've um, just got the social skills and the awareness to do that so.
1: brilliant now I recently watched the series, The People versus O.J. Simpson. And one thing I observed in this, as, as they recounted quite accurately, I believe, the tale of that momentous court mm. trial, mm. was all, as it neared the end, all the people involved, you got this real sense that this was a massive, life-changing event and their lives would not be the same after this. And it's very clever the way it ends and it shows that. Mm-hmm. With you and your family, this is a life-changing event that you went on. Once you come back, and as you said, you're sit- sat atop the mountain, you come back, then what? 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 What is the next mountain to overcome? So when we created the story of what we wanted to do,
0: there was always this placeholder at the bottom that's going to lead to new, exciting, adventures, opportunities. We knew there had to be another mountain. We didn't know what it was beforehand, but we created a space for it. Netra and I, we have now created a shared mission, shared story of our future. Uh, So we run this movement, and uh, we deliberately call it a movement called The Brave You, where our mission is, it's a 25-year mission. We've committed to this the next 25 years and said that we want to positively disrupt millions of people every year to ask themselves what's truly important to them, to their families, and then to go and create the businesses, the careers, the missions that truly serve those family first goals rather than work first that whole narrative that we are used to turning it on its head and starting with the family first goals because it gives you so much more in my experience so much more joy so much more passion so much more purpose I became the best businessman the best business leader I'd ever become because I had a family first goal. A lot of people have a fear, well hang on a second, that means you're going to sacrifice um, your career in favor of family. I found it was quite the reverse. It gave me so much more drive. So we want to share our experiences and there's some really simple techniques that we used that around creating a narrative as a family, creating your values as a family, looking at how do you behave and we want to share those ideas and those stories there's a lovely story, which um, I've been doing a lot of stuff in the educational space. A guy called Sir John Rowling shared with me, and it was the story of two prime ministers, Disraeli and Gladstone. And someone met both prime ministers, and they left one prime minister thinking, wow, he's amazing. They left the other prime minister thinking, wow, I'm amazing. And so what our mission is all about is helping other people think I'm amazing, we don't want to talk about our story, we want to talk about everybody else's stories and help everybody else to create exciting stories that give them the juice, the energy to create their own amazing masterpieces. I don't want to talk about mine anymore, I want to talk about everybody
1: else's. That's a great point. (laughs) (laughs) Very good point. Yeah, how one one was just talking about themselves and the other Prime Minister was making the other person feel like they're amazing, yeah. Now obviously you did a lot of educating of your kids in that two-year time frame, what are your views on the young people that you see coming through into the world of work, given social media and the influence and almost maturity of mm-hmm. the Internet? And what are your views on the education system? Oh, so a lot of questions. Yeah, lot, lots of things in Very
0: interesting. So look,
1: my, my, my base premise is that I am tremendously excited. <laughs>
0: I could not think of a more exciting time to be alive with the um, technological advancements and the things we have coming through. Um, right now in terms of healthcare, in terms of AI, in terms of data, in terms of how we're going to be, going to do things. There are incredible opportunities. I love disruption and change, right? so I would naturally. But I think the way the education system is teaching us to do things, it was the way it was teaching us to do things 100 years ago. It's not fit for purpose anymore because... This whole thing about sort of, um, you know, rote learning and, you know, this is the standard thing for everybody, we're all individual people and, you know, the thing that we had the luxury to do was to each individual child to find the thing that fired their curiosity and say, what do you love doing and getting them to follow their own passions. Because once you develop curiosity, once you develop passion, then you will naturally learn. Nobody has to tell you to go and do that. So it's finding some way that through, I think it will be technology enabled to help each individual child find the things that fire them up and encourage them and there are interesting things that I see coming through with some of the organizations that I've been working with that are moving in this direction but it's another area that's prime for disruption um, in terms of how we do things in the future but you know tremendously excited um, concerned of course you know, about things with social media and seeing how our kids become enveloped in that and you know, my own experiences of seeing the difference between being not connected and being you know totally immersed in it but i don't think that's healthy in terms of our brain patterns and how we're doing things so i don't know there's so many different things that are changing around this right now and so much understanding that's coming through as well that
1: help us i'm just very curious because you've talked about you know a huge amount about values and how that helped establish behaviors particularly for when things were going wrong as well as right yes Mental health issues are very much the order of the day. They're a big news item, very much linked recently with social media, uh, peer pressure, things like that. Do you think that the answer is that a lot of families need to figure out what their values are and their vision is, and that that will provide the youngsters with the resilience needed to cope with the, the e in e plus r I think it's de- I think it's definitely one
0: path and one option for people to go down that route, and clearly it 's one I would, I would I would advocate why because it worked for us and so we see it working for the hundreds of people who've had come through our events and workshops that they come and do those things, and you see those transformations and those shifts. there will be other ways that you can do that as well, but I think what fundamentally it 's about is coming together, sitting around a table as individuals, having real conversations caring about people, connecting on a human level, understanding the emotions and things that are going on. It's those real basics that I think get lost in a digital world and yeah, so it's it's
1: going back to, you know, the core essence of people, people and teamwork. Totally. Yeah, interesting. Who are your heroes?
0: I think <laughs> I think I know the answer to this.
1: Who are some of your heroes? Who are some of my heroes?
0: I think it's um, anyone who um, would actually just sort of stop and challenge the norms Probably my kids, actually, just in terms of the way that they approach things. I always talk about my six-year-old uh, Willow as being my leader on the pitch. That if I want to make anything happen in my family, she's the person I have to engage first. And she gets excited and everybody else follows her. They don't follow me, they follow her, which I'm totally comfortable with. Yeah, it's, I think yeah, anyone who sort of indulges in that independent, original thinking and asks themselves those questions. And clearly, I've been influenced by people out there. I'm reading some amazing stuff at the moment by Professor Matthew Walker about why we sleep. He's done some incredible research understanding this area of our lives that's uh, not particularly well understood. But anyone who's prepared
1: to challenge boundaries, basically. So, Interesting. Incredible. I, I have a sort of an analogy or an observation is I've recently been watching the series SAS, Who Dares Wins. <laughs> I watched that last night, actually. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> very good. And one of the things that... They do on their selection of civilians to see could they make it in the SAS is one of the questions. The final questions is, would I put my life in this person's hands? It's almost like the ultimate power, isn't Mm -hmm, it? mm -hmm. And I think it's very similar to getting on a boat with someone or your family and going around the world is that you are going to face challenges that put your lives in each other's hands. And it's that in the E plus R equals it's the R. That that is the big R in in the outcome, and I see very big similarities there. Have you ever tried something like SAS who Dares wins? Could you do it? <laughs> the um, um,
0: it's interesting. The I I totally um, subscribe to what you say. By the way, it's interesting. I remember talking to um, going to an event and sitting next to um, a guy who was a colonel serving in Iraq, and I was talking to him about my experience on boats. And that whole thing about putting your life in somebody else's hands, and he said, and he was basically saying that's kind of how it is in the military as well. So would I want to do the SAS survival thing? I'm not <laughs> sure. Actually, that's <laughs> there's probably there's part of me actually that's quite drawn towards that. So it's, but it's probably it's probably not that would probably be a
1: personal goal rather than a family first goal. So. True. Yes, uh, it would be at the expense of the family <laughs> for a few weeks. I think. Any other books that you'd recommend for reading? Um, I have to so say one one
0: book I've been uh, I've I mentioned a couple of times already. Ray Dalio Principles. I mean, it's just groundbreaking work. I mean, a lot of the, the thoughts and ideas that I went through and I've developed my thoughts on, he captures it and, and shares it uh, brilliantly. So, Principles by Ray Dalio. And of course, my book as well, Where the Magic Happens, says. <laughs> Indeed. And where, where can everybody find you online? Casper Craven. So, um, yeah, C A S P A R Craven, C R A V E N dot com. So, website, Twitter,
1: Instagram, LinkedIn, all that stuff. So. Excellent. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. A huge thank you to Casper for joining me. I was absolutely captivated listening to him, how he queried the well-trodden path that seems to be so many careers by thinking differently and questioning everything, why teamwork must start with a shared narrative, getting out of the comfort zone to develop and grow better, and how numbers are the trading indicator and people the leading one. Be sure to tune in as we'll be back soon with another interview. In the meantime, please do subscribe to Beyond the Numbers on your preferred podcast app. You can get in touch with your feedback using the hashtag Beyond the Numbers and you can tweet me at ThompsonCST and at WellersSME. Beyond the Numbers is a Wellers production. Till next time... I'll leave you with a quote from the Holocaust survivor and neurologist, Victor Frankl. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom.